Section 19 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 5, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary, Chapter 4, Part 2. Mary remained at the tower till after the 12th of August. This is apparent from the following minute from the Privy Council book. The council delivered to the Lord Mayor and Recorder these words, from the Queen's own mouth, yesterday at the Tower, being the 12th of August, on occasion of a riot at St. Paul's Cross, about preaching. Albeit, her grace's conscience is stayed, or fixed, in matters of religion, yet she meaneth graciously, not to compel and constrain other men's consciences, otherwise than God shall, as she trusteth, put into their hearts a persuasion of the truth that she is in, through the opening of his word by godly, virtuous, and learned preachers, and she forbade the Lord Mayor to suffer, in any ward, open reading of the scriptures in the churches, or preaching by the curates, unless licensed by her. Such was the first blow aimed at the Protestant Church of England. Mary was empowered to inflict it, as head of the very church whose ministers she silenced by force of her supremacy. It is an instance of the manner in which that tremendous power worked, and explains the mystery why the great body of the English nation, albeit not composed of the most flexible of elements, changed their ritual with magic celerity, according to the differing opinions of four successive sovereigns. But the truth was, in that evil century, each sovereign was empowered, unfettered by parliament or convocation, to change the entire ministration of the clergy throughout the realm, by the simple act of private will. Thus the religious tuition of the parish churches in London, the Sunday before the 12th of August, was according to the Protestant church, established by Edward the Sixth, and the next Sunday, according to the anti-papal Catholic church of Henry the Eighth. While Queen Mary continued head of the church in England, a reconciliation with the See of Rome was an impossibility. The trial of Northumberland and his coadjutors took place August 18th. Eleven were condemned to die, but three only executed, the smallest number ever known, either before or since, of the partisans of a usurpation. Hollingshed affirms there was great difficulty in inducing Mary to consent to the death of Northumberland, because of the former friendly intercourse there had been between them, of which friendliness many instances may be proved from her privy purse expenses when princess. Northumberland, with his two dependents, Gates and Palmer, were nevertheless put to death on August 22nd. Northumberland professed himself a Catholic at his death, and spoke very earnestly against the Protestant religion, which could receive no injury from lips false as his. An affecting incident occurred on the evening of his death. The Lancaster Herald, who had been an old retainer to the Duke, begged an audience of Queen Mary, and respectful to the dead, implored her to grant him the head of his master, that it might be decently interred. The Queen told him, In God's name to take the whole body as well, and give his lord proper burial. Mary was, at the time of his execution, resident at Richmond Palace. Here most of the acts of the Privy Council are dated, during the rest of August and part of September. The imperial ambassadors urged the Queen to bring Lady Jane Grey to trial, at the same time with her father-in-law, Northumberland, since she could never reign in security while that lady lived, for the first faction, when strong enough, would set up her claims again. 
Mary replied, she could not find it in her heart or conscience to put her unfortunate kinswoman to death, who had not been an accomplice of Northumberland, but merely an unresisting instrument in his hands. If there was any crime in being his sister-in-law, even of that her cousin Jane was not guilty, for she had been legally contracted to another, and therefore her marriage with Lord Guildford Dudley was not valid. As for the danger existing from her pretensions, it was but imaginary, and every requisite precaution should be taken before she was set at liberty. These coincide with a letter of explanation sent by that lady from the tower, which contains an extraordinary narrative of her brief royalty. Lady Jane commenced this narrative with the declaration that she was willing to extenuate her fault, if such great faults may be extenuated, by a full and ingenuous confession. She described her consternation and confusion when her father and mother, her mother-in-law, the Duchess of Northumberland, and the Duke, announced to her the death of Edward the Sixth, and at the same time, doing her homage as queen, informed her that, by virtue of his will, she was left heiress to the crown. She fell to the ground and swooned, as one dead, overcome with grief at tidings she too truly felt, to be fatally disastrous to her, and with tears and shuddering, remained the passive victim of their ambition. She declared to her royal cousin, to whom her domestic griefs seemed told almost familiarly, that when she was brought to the tower as queen, the Marquess of Winchester, Lord Treasurer, brought her the crown, to try on her head, to see how it would fit her, and that he brought it of his own accord, unsent for by her, or any one in her name, and when she scrupled to put it on, the Marquess said, she need not do so, for he would have another maid to crown her husband withal. To this exaltation of her husband, Jane firmly objected, which drew on her scenes of coarse violence from him and his mother, the Duchess of Northumberland. They appear to have used personal ill-treatment to her, for she says, with indignant emphasis, I was maltreated by my husband and his mother. This curious narrative exists in the pages of three contemporary Italian writers, with slight variations, which prove they collected the same facts from different sources, all agreeing in essentials. One of our contemporary chroniclers relates an anecdote of the Marquess of Winchester, the time-serving Lord Treasurer, who, with the shamelessness peculiar to the officials of that era, when preparing for the coronation of Queen Mary, came to the unfortunate prisoner, Lady Jane, and told her that several valuable jewels were missing from the state crown, and that she was accountable for them. On this pretense, all the money and jewels of Lady Jane and her husband were confiscated. The extension of Queen Mary had not altered her affection for the Princess Elizabeth. Whatever were their after jealousies, their first difference had yet to take place, for at the present time, Wherever Mary went, she led her sister by the hand, and never dined in public without her. Mary likewise distinguished Courtney, Earl of Devonshire, with great attention. She endeavored to form his manners, and appointed a nobleman to guide his conduct. He is said to have contracted habits of low profligacy at the tower, which she was exceedingly desirous of seeing altered. But he was too late in life for any very rapid improvement, being turned of thirty. His noble person was not, however, deteriorated by the vices with which he is charged, for his portrait, by Sir Antonio More, presents all the grand outline of our ancient royal race, the commanding Plantagenets. 
the expression of his face is penetrating and majestic the features high and exquisitely moulded the forehead lofty and noble and decorated withal by a magnificent chevelure of light brown curls courtney inherited sufficient ambition to desire a marriage with the queen and the english people ardently wished the match it has been said that mary loved him and was refused by him an assertion contrary to all existing documents if she ever loved her cousin courtney she must have relinquished him within a very few days of her accession since in the middle of august she had a private interview with comendone the pope's envoy in which she told him that she had concluded her league with the emperor and had entirely resolved on her marriage with his heir prince philip comendone had privately entered the kingdom from flanders he obtained his first audience with difficulty and in disguise mary assured him of her inviolable attachment to the religion in which she had been educated and of her desire to restore the pope's supremacy in her kingdom but she entreated him to act with caution and to conceal his identity she gave him a letter to pope julius the third declaring her wish that her kingdom might be reconciled to rome and entreating that cardinal pole might be instantly sent to her public opinion had already named this attached kinsman as one of the three suitors for the hand of the queen but if the pope was willing to dispense with the vows of a prince of the church it was not probable that the rigid principles of either the queen or reginald pole would suffer them to accept such dispensation the counsel pole gave to mary was to remain single the counsel which was seconded by another of her friends of tried sincerity his intimate associate friar peto this churchman was by birth a gentleman of devonshire his bold sermon at greenwich in defence of mary's mother had startled henry the eighth in his pitch of pride peto had survived cromwell's proposal of putting him in a sack and throwing him into the thames and unaided by any power save his calm contempt of life had proved victor in the contest and lived to be a cardinal he had resided with reginald pole since he had retired from england he now tendered his advice to mary with the same uncompromising integrity which had led him to thunder the principles of moral justice in the ears of her terrific father do not marry he wrote to the queen or you will be the slave of a young husband besides at your age the chance of bringing heirs to the crown is doubtful and moreover would be dangerous to your life unvarnished truths these were yet it is a respectable point in mary's character that she testified no displeasure either to her kinsman or his plain-spoken friend when counsel was offered so little soothing to female vanity violent struggles took place throughout the month of august between partisans of the rival rituals for possession of churches and pulpits which were frequently decided by the prevalence of personal strength for the ostensible purpose of putting an end to scenes disgraceful to religion in general the queen issued another proclamation forbidding any person to preach without her license till further order by common consent was taken meaning by act of parliament thus were all preachers silenced who promulgated doctrine contrary to the royal will one of the earliest compliments paid to the queen on her accession was the baptism of the great bell at christ church which had been recast by the name of mary the learned jewel whose office it was to write the congratulatory letter from oxford on the queen's accession was reading it to dr tresham a zealous catholic 
for his approbation when the newly hung bell set out in an earnest call to the first mass that had been celebrated in oxford since the establishment of the protestant church of england dr tresham broke into an ecstasy oh sweet mary he exclaimed how musically how melodiously doth she sound that bell then rung adds fuller impressively the knell of gospel truth in the city of oxford afterwards filled with protestant tears however ample her power as head of the english church might be it was the wish of queen mary to resign it and restore supremacy to the pope but bishop gardiner her lord chancellor was opposed to her intentions so far from wishing any reunion of england with the see of rome he was extremely earnest that queen mary should retain her title and authority as head of the english church her answer to him was a remarkable one women she said i have read in scripture are forbidden to speak in the church is it then fitting that your church should have a dumb head the witty equivoque of queen mary's reply may lead readers to an erroneous appreciation of this dignity as at present exercised by a queen regnant but indeed defined and constitutional as it has been rendered since the revolution of sixteen eighty eight it presents in our times neither the difficulties nor the anomalies it did when henry the eighth bequeathed it with the regal office to his children the power henry assumed could be likened to nothing in history excepting that with which the mahometans invested the caliphs of baghdad he prescribed articles of belief he appointed bishops and altered their temporalities at his pleasure he interpreted scripture according to his exigencies he actually sat in conclave with the bishops of his creed and as visible head of the english church examined and condemned to the flames those who dissented from his six articles among others the meek and faithful protestant lambert altogether he united with the crown of england a degree of spiritual despotism which was the fruitful source of civil and religious warfare till the extension of the house of brunswick such was the practical exercise of the power queen mary was eager to resign and which the anti-papal catholics were equally desirous she should retain thus at the extension of mary england was divided into three parties each struggling to be recognized as the established church all equally inimical to each other these were first in strength the anti-papal catholic church established by henry the eighth secondly the protestant church of england established by the regency of edward the sixth and thirdly the adherents of the ancient catholic church who acknowledged no spiritual supremacy but that of the pope perhaps the latter were the weakest in numbers of the three they had endured twenty years severe persecution yet were now strengthened by the regal dignity having fallen to one of their faith who had shared in their sufferings the principal calamities of queen mary's life had been inflicted by the anti-papal catholics who were at this era greatly superior in numbers and political power to either of the others from their ranks had been drawn the vigorous ministry that aided henry the eighth in his long course of despotic cruelty in his rapacity in his bigamies and in his religious persecutions the survivors of this junta who were well versed in the art of government by long usitude of wielding it were now the ministers of queen mary it must have caused a bitter pang to her heart when she placed her government in the hands of those who long before cranmer emerged from private life 
had been active agents in the divorce of her mother, but she had no other choice. Cramner had, during a large portion of his public life, officiated as the primate of Henry VIII's anti-papal Catholic Church. In the course of this primacy, he had made some abortive efforts to oppose, in Parliament, the penal enforcement of the six articles, which Henry VIII and the majority of his bishops had appointed as the English creed, and to which many faithful Protestants fell victims. Directly after the burial of his terrific master, Cramner aided the protector Somerset in establishing a church of England, more practically humane, in which Protestant principles were, for the first time, recognized. And this is, in truth, the earliest period at which Protestants can historically be deemed responsible for any action performed by an English government. Then commenced that hatred between the leaders of the anti-papal church of Henry the Eighth and the leaders of the Church of England, such as can only be engendered in the bosoms of those who, from late associates, have become political and polemic opponents. The Protestant bishops inflicted on their enemies but the minor persecution of imprisonment, which lasted the chief part of Edward the Sixth reign. This was endured by Gardner with philosophy, by Bonner with irritation, amounting to mania. The failure of the Protestants in establishing the regality of the next Protestant heir to the throne, Lady Jane Grey, made the scale of political power preponderant, once more, in favor of the anti-papal Catholics, whose leader, Bishop Gardner, changed the prison room in the tower for the seat of Lord Chancellor, with astonishing celerity. Till Gardner received the seals, Cranmer was not only at liberty, but officiating in his high functions, as Archbishop of Canterbury. On the 27th of August, he, in obedience to an order from the Queen's Council, delivered a schedule of his effects, and received a command to continue himself to his house at Lambeth. In one opinion alone did all these antagonists agree, which was in the detestation of the Queen's engagement with the Prince of Spain. They were heartily joined in it by Cardinal Pole, whose dislike to the Spanish match was so well known to the Emperor Charles, that he intercepted him in his journey to England, and detained him in a German convent, till after the marriage had taken place. One class in England alone was desirous of the match. These were the political economists, chiefly belonging to the moneyed and mercantile interest. They were alarmed at the marriage of Mary, Queen of Scotland, with the heir of France, and they earnestly wished the balance of power to be restored, by the wedlock of Mary, Queen of England, with the heir of the Low Countries. Charles V had resolved on this marriage, despite his son's reluctance, who, at twenty-six, entreated that his father would give him a wife younger than himself, instead of one eleven years older. But union with England was far too favorable a step, towards the emperor's scheme of universal dominion, to be given up for notions of mere domestic happiness. Therefore he made a final tender of the hand of the unwilling Philip, in a letter written to Queen Mary, on the 20th of September, in which he says, that if his own age and health had rendered him a suitable spouse, he should have had the greatest satisfaction in wedding her himself. But, as he could not make such proposal, he had nothing more dear to offer to his beloved kinswoman than his son, Don Philip. When it is remembered that this great emperor had been formerly solemnly betrothed to Mary, and was now a widower, an apology for not marrying her himself was far from superfluous. 
yet it must be owned that the style in which he proposes his son as his substitute bears an amusing resemblance to the solemn gallantry of his illustrious subject the knight of la mancha the emperor entreated that mary would not at present communicate her engagement to her ministers the reason of this request was that some among them wished her to marry his nephew the archduke whose possessions were not considered formidable to english liberty and because he knew they were all opposed to prince philip the queen meantime bestowed some attention on forming her household and rewarding the personal friends who had remained faithful to her in her long adversity she found the three gentlemen who had incurred the displeasure of the council rather than gainsay her commands captive in various prisons it has been stated that they had been previously liberated by edward the sixth but the total absence of their names from the queen's proceedings during her struggle for the throne brings conviction that the above statement is true robert rochester she made comptroller of the royal household and chancellor of the duchy of lancaster she carried her gratitude so far as to make him knight of the garter and one of her privy council his nephew edward walgrave she honored with knighthood and gave the profitable office of master of the great wardrobe sir francis inglefield their fellow sufferer was given a place at court and was appointed a privy councillor the queen's gratitude took a very odd form in the case of the earl of sussex he was a valetudinarian who had a great fear of uncovering his head and considering that the colds he dreaded respected no person he petitioned queen mary for leave to wear his nightcap in her royal presence the queen in her abundant grace not only gave him leave to wear one but two nightcaps if he pleased his patent for this privilege is perhaps unique in royal annals know ye that we do give to our well-beloved and trusty cousin and counsellor henry earl of sussex viscount fitzwater and lord of egremond and bernal license and pardon to wear his cap coif or nightcap or any two of them at his pleasure as well in our presence as in the presence of any other person or persons within this realm or any other place in our dominions wheresoever during his life and these our letters shall be his sufficient warrant in his behalf the queen's seal with the garter about it is affixed to this singular grant she reinstated the old duke of norfolk in his rank and restored the bulk of his immense possessions confiscated by the crown without legal attainer indeed as the offence given by the duke and his murdered son was a mere quibble regarding heraldic bearings such as an english sovereign centuries before would have scorned to consider as a crime the duke was restored on mere petition to the queen in which he says pathetically sovereign lady the offence wherewith your said subject and supplicant was charged was only for bearing arms which he and his ancestors had heretofore of long continuous borne as well as in the presence of the late king as in the presence of divers of his noble progenitors kings of england the grandson of the injured noble thomas heir to the earl of surrey was distinguished by queen mary with great favour and received the appointment of her page of honour opposed his youth and beauty well qualified him to fill the queen now indulged the musical taste for which she was so noted and which extraordinary manifestation of melody in her forehead proves to have been a ruling passion she established the musicians of her chapel royal with more than usual care 
the names of our best english composers are to be found among them a letter extant from grace lady shrewsbury to her husband who was absent guarding against an inbreak from the scottish border gives some insight regarding the manners of mary in the early days of her sovereignty and describes her as in high enjoyment of her taste for sacred music september fifteen fifty three yesternight the queen's majesty came from evensong which was sung in her chapel by all her singing men of the same with playing of organs in the solemnest manner her highness called me unto her and asked me when you rode to the north and when i told her grace that you were there she held up her hands and besought god to send you good health and that she might soon see you again i perceived her grace to be little doubtful of the quietness of the northern counties her highness was so much my good lady that she told me that whatsoever i wish i should come to her for since she would be my husband till your lordship came home the whole attention of queen mary and her court was now fixed on the approaching coronation deep were the cogitations of heralds and royal chaplains they were at a loss regarding precedence since neither saxons nor normans had owned a sovereign regina britain had been occasionally governed by female monarchs and the venerable common law of the land not only recognized their right of succession but the law itself is traced to a female reign yet these fair civilizers had existed in an antiquity so dim that no clear ideas could remain of their coronations nor was it very certain that they had been crowned the norman nobility and their descendants through evident distaste to female authority had refused to recognize the rightful heiresses matilda the empress eleonora of Brittany, and elizabeth of york as sovereign ladies the effects of ferocity which interminable wars had rendered national had destroyed the promising heirs male from every branch of the great stem of plantagenet and it was now matter of curiosity to note how completely the throne was surrounded by female claimants if the life of queen mary failed nature and an act of parliament made her sister elizabeth her successor on whose failure the young queen of scotland had undoubted rights to unite the island crowns for the sceptre of north as well as that of south britain was then swayed by a queen mary if the young queen of scotland died without heirs then a procession of female claimants long as that of banquo's kings appeared there was lady margaret douglas who had however two infant sons but neither she nor her offspring had ever been recognized as claimants then frances duchess of suffolk and her daughters lady jane gray lady catherine gray and their younger sister the deformed lady mary and the sister of francis brandon eleanor lady clifford and her two daughters were the representatives of the royal line thus our combative forefathers if they meant to preserve the succession of the royal family had no alternative but to submit to the domination of a female this they did with the worst grace in the world and if they did not term their sovereign as the hungarians did theirs king mary they insisted on her being encumbered with spurs and girded with swords and other implements of the destructiveness in which their souls delighted for the result of all the cogitations on her coronation was that their regina was to be inaugurated in all particulars like unto the king of england there was however one thing needed without which a coronation like most other pomps must remain a dead letter there was not one penny in the royal purse 
and queen mary was forced to borrow twenty thousand pounds from her loyal london citizens before she could be crowned when this supply was obtained the coronation was all the care and was finally appointed for the first of october previously to that day the queen was to pass in great procession through the city which it was the citizens province by old custom to adorn for the occasion three days before the coronation the queen removed from st james's to whitehall and took her barge at the stairs accompanied by her sister the princess elizabeth and other ladies and proceeded to the tower this was by no means a private transit but attended with all the gaiety of a city procession by water the lord mayor and companies meeting her in their barges with streamers trumpets weights shalms and regals at the tower the queen was received with discharges of ordnance which continued some time after her entry the next day september twenty ninth she made fifteen knights of the bath who did not receive the accolade from her royal hand they were knighted in her presence by her lord steward henry earl of arundel the most noted among these knights were her cousin courtney earl of devonshire and the young earl of surrey about three o'clock next day the queen set forth from the tower in grand procession through the streets of the city of london a ceremony which custom imperatively required the sovereign to perform as a prologue to the coronation it has now been commuted for a royal dinner at guild hall which it may be observed always precedes the coronation queen mary's city procession was splendid she was remarkable for the great number of her own sex who ever surrounded her it must be owned that some personal courage was required to be a lady of honor to queen mary for in the dangerous struggles for the crown she was always accompanied by her female attendants this was however one of her halcyon days and the procession was distinguished by seventy ladies riding after the queen on horseback clad in crimson velvet five hundred gentlemen noblemen and ambassadors preceded her the lowest in degree leading the way each of the ambassadors was accompanied by a great officer of the crown the french ambassador noel by lord paget and renaud the emperor's resident who took precedence of noel by lord cobham the chief sewer the earl of sussex bore the queen's hat and cloak between two squires of honour who had robes of estate rolled and worn baldric wise over the shoulder and round the waist and wore caps of estate of the dukedoms of normandy and guienne the lord mayor on the left of the garter king at arms carried the sceptre the queen headed the lady procession seated in a most splendid litter supported between six white horses covered with housings of cloth of silver she was dressed in a gown of blue velvet furred with ermine on her head was a call of gold network beset with pearls and precious stones the value thereof was inestimable and the weight so great says stowe that she was fain to bear up her head with her hand it was evident that she was afflicted with one of her constitutional headaches which generally attacked her if unusually agitated the pain was not ameliorated by the weight of her inestimable circlet elizabeth followed in an open chariot richly covered with crimson velvet and by her was seated henry the eighth's surviving widow anne of cleves they were dressed in robes and kirtles of cloth of silver with large hanging sleeves this car was followed by sir edward hastings who in reward for his services had been made master of the horse leading queen mary's own palfrey 
to him succeeded a long train of alternate chariots and equestrian damsels the ladies of the highest rank rode four together in chariots the ladies of the bedchamber and those who held office at court rode on horseback dressed in kirtles of gold or silver cloth and robes of crimson velvet their horses trapped with the same among the ladies who bore office in the palace the names of the queen's confidant mrs clara sue and mary finch keeper of the jewels appear they were her old and faithful servants then rode the queen's chamberers in crimson satin their horses decked with the like they were nine in number and were guarded by mrs bainham the mother of the maids some of these ladies were married women among them might be recognized the virtuous and learned daughters of sir anthony cook one of whom was the wife of nicholas bacon and another the second wife of cecil mrs bacon's intercessions with queen mary in behalf of cecil proved that she had some influence among the other distinguished ladies who attended this coronation was mrs bassett daughter of the illustrious margaret roper and granddaughter of sir thomas more the royal henchmen clad in the tudor colours of white and green the royal guard and their captain sir henry jerningham and the gentlemen-at-arms brought up the procession pageantry in the old accustomed style greeted the queen in her progress through the city in fenchurch street she listened to orations from four great saints in gracechurch street to a solo on the trumpet from a great angel in green perched on a triumphal arch prepared by the florentine merchants when this angel lifted its gigantic arm with the trumpet to its mouth the mob gave a shout of astonishment the conduits at cornhill and cheapside ran with wine and at the latter the aldermen presented the queen with the benevolence of one thousand marks in a crimson purse at st paul's school the queen's favorite poet and player haywood sat under a vine and delivered an oration by the time the procession which had started at three from the tower had proceeded as far as st paul's the shades of an autumn evening must have been closing around and the violence of the wind somewhat injured a sight only once before exhibited in london this was the gymnastics of peter the dutchman on the weathercock of old st paul's the ball and cross of the cathedral were decorated with flags and meant to be illuminated but the wind blew out the torches as fast as they were lighted it does not appear that peter flew down on a rope as he did at the coronation of edward the sixth but he played many antics at that fearful height for which he was paid sixteen pounds thirteen shillings four pence by the lord mayor the queen was escorted by the lord mayor through temple bar to the palace of whitehall where she took leave of him giving him great thanks for his pains and the city for their cost End of section nineteen.